This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Hauser and Portia Hensley. Hello and welcome to Women in a Day podcast. We are Jenny Hauser and Portia Hensley, and we are very excited to have our guest today. Yes, today we have Ann Munch, an attorney with 27 years of experience as a career prosecutor and advocate for victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. As a subject matter expert for the United States Air Force, the United States Army, and the United States Navy, Anne has worked extensively on the development of the sexual assault prevention and response programs in the military. Anne's enthusiasm and passion for her work have been described as contagious. She understands the complexity of crimes involving violence against women and the inherent challenges faced by victims. She is dedicated to improving our response to crimes of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. And we couldn't think of anyone better to have speak to us, especially at this moment in time. So thank you so much, Anne. Thank you for having me. All right. So jumping in at this moment, what is a typical day like for you? My typical day always depends on what city I wake up in because I (laughs) travel a lot for my work. I have a consulting business where I do speaking, training, and consulting. So I might be on a stage doing a training to police officers and prosecutors. I might be delivering a keynote address. I might be training um, military folks in Japan, or I might be at my desk working on some consulting projects right here in Denver. So it really, it really just depends. I have a very diverse kind of group of subjects that I work on and it all centers around interpersonal violence. Okay. That's really interesting. Let's go back a little bit. Let's figure out how you got here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your history, and how you got into working with women and violence against women. Well, I uh, went to law school and decided to become a DA. So I spent a total of about 13 years as a prosecutor in Colorado in three different jurisdictions. And and did you decide to go with prosecution? Oh, it was an easy one. I cared so much about what was happening to people who were victimized, you know, in our society. Mm-hmm. And one of my older brothers had been a prosecutor. And I really admired his work and kind of the impact that he got to have for people who had been hurt. And that resonated with me. And so I started in the Denver DA's office and spent about seven years there, really focused on um, sexual assault, child abuse, and domestic violence. And it just changed me. You know, I'm from a wonderful family with one of the most respectful set of parents. My dad was loved by everyone, and and he loved us in that same way. And so seeing the impact of these kinds of interpersonal violence crimes in the lives of humans just motivated me to try to do as much as I can in the context of my legal career to make some changes. And then what happened? I split my time kind of as a prosecutor in three different areas of Colorado. And then I I ran a, a program in Colorado called the Ending Violence Against Women Project that was a multidisciplinary team still up and running that goes around to every rural nook and cranny of Colorado and offers really excellent training by prosecutors, police officers, 
sane nurses and victim advocates on sexual assault, domestic violence, and stalking so that people in more rural areas can benefit from some of the the wisdom, perhaps, that's been developed in other places and just to try to meet their needs and not having to drive or fly somewhere to get a training. So I did that for about nine years. And what did the trainings look like? What was that about? They're typically, the trainings are usually two days long. The first day we would cover domestic violence. The second day we would cover sexual assault. And within the context of each of those, we would talk about stalking, drug facilitated crimes, all of the dynamics offenders, victims. We would kind of cover everything that has to do with those unique kinds of crimes. And we would repeat that training all over the state. And then we would also do more specialized training, like for campuses, or maybe a training on strangulation so that people understood what that looked like. Non-stranger sexual assault, understanding consent. You know, we, we began to weave in these topics that clearly every community struggles with mm-hmm. and kind of, um, I guess, modify to make sure they got the best information. And it was a great experience, put me up in front of of classrooms, um, you know, just constantly. And it helped me, I think, hone some of my skills around learning how to communicate about very difficult issues. And as I started doing that more um, on a state level, I started also doing it on a national level. And then I, I was asked by the military to step in and begin helping them, as well as you know, some other large organizations in in this country. And so I decided to start a consulting business. And I had been doing this pretty steadily for 10 years. I primarily work on the issues of sexual assault. I do also work with domestic violence, but it has been such a curve for us to be working and trying to advance understanding in the area of of sexual assault and intimate partner violence that I, I just have decided to do that. It's a fascinating area. And is it mostly training or is it, you mentioned before when we weren't recording that you're doing other kind of work as well? I do. So I do training, a lot of police departments and that kind of thing. I do a lot of speaking. And so I, I deliver keynotes and different kinds of addresses at large conferences. I've been to Oh, I've lost track of the number of countries. I've been, I have worked in 49 out of the 50 states. I don't know what Rhode Island has against me. <laughs> um, and then I have been all over Europe, Asia. And last winter, I had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and mm-hmm. present for two days at a conference uh, to the Orthodox Jewish community on family violence and child abuse. And oh, so it's taken me literally. Thing. Yeah. Wow. It's incredible. All around the world. Uh, so I so I speak, and then I also have a consulting business, and so I do a lot of work as an expert, sometimes with the U.S. Department of Justice or the military and other organizations like that who need expertise as they work on their projects or try to respond to communities that are struggling with how to do these cases correctly. Do you help with as like a prosecutor's expert in a case, like somebody would present a case to you and say what is your opinion about this or how do we prosecute it or do we prosecute it? I do. Yes. I have done a lot of that in a couple of communities like Missoula, Montana, who recently went through some problems. You know, it was a John Krakauer wrote a a great book about our experiences up there. And I worked in Missoula as a consultant for about four years with the police department and the prosecutor's office. And part of what I did was analyze, okay, let's look at how you investigate cases. Let's look at 
why are victims dropping out? Let's try to address that. Let's look at how investigators, how, how's their burnout level? You know, how are they doing with these cases? Um, where are the victim advocates and are they able to step in and assist? And what can we do to better hold offenders accountable? Because really, that's the risk that we take if we don't do these cases correctly. And that is that offenders often just fold themselves right back into our communities and continue their behavior. And so. I think that's one thing that's very difficult to understand is that dynamic when it is an intimate partner situation of that there becomes this huge gray area of, you know, people's lives are often intertwined. So testifying against someone knowing that they may, may be going to jail, you may be losing your primary financial source of support. You may be losing a parent to your children and so that's just such a complicated thing. And I think it would be really interesting for people who maybe have not been involved in a case and don't really understand how the system works. So can you walk us through, once there's an arrest against someone, what is what typically happens next? In before the arrest, I think, is an interesting, yeah. especially in Colorado. Yeah. Yes. So you're talking about domestic violence? It, yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk okay. about it. So, so with domestic violence... Um, you know, what we know in general is that there are so many incidents that precede anybody calling. Tell us what domestic violence is. Oh, all right. So domestic violence can be defined basically as uh, one partner using power and control dynamics, if you will, tactics, strategies to control the other person and typically within the context where crimes are committed. So it might be assault. But it might be something like keying somebody's car or, you know, forcing them to sign checks or abusing the dog or their children, um, you know, kidnapping, sexual assault. All these things can fall under the umbrella of domestic violence. But really what we're looking at is, is a bully. And it has to be a romantic relationship in Colorado, at least. It does. It has to be. Uh, it doesn't. You don't have to show that there's actual sex, but you have to have a relationship that typically lines up within the context of intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. So emotional intimacy. Domestic violence is a crime of trust and betrayal of trust. Okay. So that is usually what's brewing in the background. Um, there's a dynamic that gets set up. There's a testing period. Often victims, of course, they don't fall in love with really horrible people. They fall in love with someone that appears to be what they have always wanted. Right. And then over time, there you go. Over time, layers start to peel back. Yes. Yes. And so once the police are involved and, you know, we have, we have specific laws in Colorado that dictate law enforcement's response, Mm -hmm. the court's response, et cetera. But very quickly, the, the case the, you know, the offender would go to jail and, and be advised about a protection order and receive a protection order before they get out of jail. Then, you know, often the DA's office or whoever it is that is going to be processing that case steps in, hopefully quickly makes contact with the victim. They figure out what the charges are. Sometimes the police decide the charges. Sometimes the DA's office or the city attorney's office decides the charges. And then the case is scheduled for some hearings. And it's an opportunity to try and help that family, you know, to, to reach out, figure out what's going on, help that victim resource them, let them know that they're not alone and see what can be done. And also, honestly, to really try to break that cycle for the offender as well to, you know, bring a reality check to, to that person too. 
But I'm guessing that outreach that needs to happen with the victim, it has to happen like right away because I'm assuming that people generally start to get cold feet or reconsider pretty quickly yes. after the police are involved. That's, that is so true. That's why we have developed, in essence, around the country, these things called fast-track programs or things like them, where we are responding to victims within the day you know, or the next day mm-hmm. so that we can try to get that cycle broken. Because the longer we wait, if we're putting those cases off, offender right. gets out of jail, comes back home with hearts and flowers, you know, yeah. and it's hard for survivors to it is. deal with it. Yeah. And in Colorado, you have to arrest. So if the crime has been committed and it's between two intimate partners, the police are obligated to make an arrest, even if it's both partners are saying, well, obviously the person who committed the crime isn't going to want to be arrested. But mm-hmm. if the victim is um, saying that he or she doesn't want to pursue charges because they do recant. And that's why they developed that law. And with our um, one of our previous, I don't know if you know her, Jackie St. Joan. Sure. Yeah, she was one of our guests. Uh, she helped pass that through. And um, we've even had, we've had a woman who was beaten with an ax in the hospital on the phone with us saying, let him out, let him out. And she'd be beaten in the head with an axe from the hospital bed. We called the police on our neighbors one night because we heard a woman yelling. It had happened a couple times. We just assumed that it was the man. And then, you know, you're like laying there hearing this all play out. And then you hear him crying, saying, don't take her away. And it was like, oh, okay, so she's being taken away. But it is interesting because they were both screaming like, no, you know, and she's yelling that she doesn't want to go. And he's saying, no, it's okay. It's okay. We'll work it out. And we don't have a choice. No, there's no choice. choice. So, yeah, it's true. You know, it's, um, if there's probable cause and, and that's the tricky part is because often in situations like this, the police are tasked with determining who is what we would call the predominant aggressor. Okay. Because they can tricky. Yeah, it's tricky, you know, and we have a lot of factors to, to help them really look at who really is the person who is the bully in this relationship. Because I know a lot of offenders who are great actors and they know very much how to set victims up and make them look like offenders or look like the crazy one or whatever that is. And so we're asking a lot of police officers and that's, That's part of why training is so critically important, helping them understand the dynamics, understand what what they might come onto on these scenes and how to try to decipher some of this so that we get it right. Because I'll tell you the other thing, the worst thing you can do to a victim of domestic violence is arrest them um, and get it wrong. You know, they will never call again. Mm -hmm. And that person has been really empowered now the offender in that relationship. And so that's a lot of what I used to do at the DA's office was unravel those dual arrests or making sure that the police arrested the right person because yes, it's, it, it's tricky. It's complicated and it's really important that we get it right. You know, the, the other trick I think in the, both these cases and sexual assault cases is learning how to focus on offender behavior. We tend to because it's easier. I want you to pick, you know, picture a compass in your mind. This is what I, said last week doing some education if you picture a compass in your mind and if if the compass represents either the crime of domestic violence or the crime of sexual assault okay Okay. now picture north on the compass north represents victim behavior and what i mean by that is it's where we are oriented 
when we hear a case of sexual assault, are some of our first questions, if it's a female victim, are why did she? Why didn't she? What was she? Mm-hmm. Right? If it's a crime of domestic violence, you know, we start asking the why questions. We start wondering and looking at the, the part that we feel like sometimes we can control, yeah. which is victim behavior. Like, why are you going back? Why won't you leave? As long as we're asking those questions and focusing on victim behavior, we are not focusing on offender behavior. And probably that is the thing that I work the hardest with communities to try to get them to switch how they how they look at this. Because yeah. it's really, there are lots of reasons why they do this as a culture and as individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it's very counterproductive if indeed we are investigating crime. So, it, you know, we have to remember to investigate criminal behavior. That's right? very true. So you've said that you've done, that you, a lot of your work centers around more rural areas. So what are the unique challenges when you talk about offender behavior that are different to what you might see in a larger place? I lived in Telluride, Colorado for about four years and I was the chief deputy DA down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also, while I was down there, after I stopped prosecuting, I ran our program, which is now called the San Miguel Resource Center. So it's a victim advocacy program. Mm-hmm. So I saw from both a prosecutor's viewpoint as, and from a, a victim advocacy viewpoint what rural victims um, in more isolated areas and smaller towns go through. And the challenges include, you know, it's the old... everybody knows everybody, everybody knows what everybody's doing and everybody knows with whom whatever is being done. Right. Right. And so, uh, the, the tendency for victims to isolate themselves or to be reluctant to reach out is really magnified. If they think that when they go into the police department for help or they go into Mm -hmm. the resource center for help, they're going to be recognized and suddenly people will know why they're there or, you know, so, so part of the, the real problem is just, people being in victims' business, and they're not wanting that to happen. Right. Um, other challenges include a real lack of resources. You know, you go to some of these rural areas in Colorado, and the the pay for the, the deputy sheriffs down in, for example, down in Alamosa and, and that whole judicial district down there through Costilla County, the, the distances are enormous. Yeah. You know, the response time can be a couple of hours. Right. And I think, you know, the pay is less than you and I probably made um, at Starbucks if we ever worked at Starbucks for a year. We're asking huge things of law enforcement and prosecutors in these areas, um, as well as victim advocacy. I was going to so. say, the victim advocacy is probably the first piece that gets cut it, it can in be. a budget. Yeah. And, and, of course, we rely on volunteers for victim advocates, you know, and but we have to be able to train them. We have to be able to work with them. And um, so part of it is resources. Part of it is the geographics. Part of it is the, the issues around isolation, mm-hmm. as well as they're really, where are they going to go? You know, often. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Where do you go? Yeah. If and, you have children, mm-hmm. where, you know, where do you go? Your support system is often very much tied to that same community. That's right. You know, in Denver, I mean, we, not that we have enough resources anywhere, Mm -hmm. but there, I could think of three or four places I could call in Denver for a sexual assault victim or a domestic violence victim. Mm -hmm. That's not true in rural Colorado. And so Mm -hmm. all of those things, I think, really bear on a survivor's ability to find what they need if they choose to change circumstances. And it really kind of emboldens people that um, want to keep the control in that relationship. 
Tell us about the Family Justice Center, which I think is an interesting resource. Yes, these are wonderful resources. Family Justice Centers are all around the country, uh, including in Denver. And the idea of a Family Justice Center is under one roof. You have the one place where a victim can go to get their resources so that they're not driving to 10 different places so they can get the interview done there. And we're not asking to interview them three and four times. We have all the people that need to do the interview at the Justice Center conducting one interview so that they can all get their questions answered and the victim isn't making three or four trips. They can get their medical care. They can, they can get protection orders. They can talk with, um, you know, health and human services. They can deal with the department of social services if they are involved. So, so it's all of these resources in one place. And what it does is it, it really makes accessibility to the kinds of help that victims need in order to make different choices for themselves or just to survive better a lot more possible. And they are, they're wonderful. They're, they're, I think, have really helped in the communities where they are. And I think what you said too about just getting that quick contact, the more you can sort of isolate victims from their situation, the more they feel supported and the less likely they are to have those opportunities to rethink where they stand and what their options are. It's true. Uh, you know, sometimes I ask people in my trainings, I'll say, okay, I'll go up to a police officer, a, a big strapping male police officer, and I'll say, okay, give me your keys. Let me have your wallet, right? Hand me uh, the title to your house. Hand me the title to your boat or whatever other toys you have. Give me all of those things. Do you have kids? Yeah, I've got two kids. Okay, great. So right now, first of all, you're unemployed. I own all of these things. And I'm going to ask you to basically um, leave and go survive. And I'm going to give you a whopping $400 a month on which to do that. Do you think that you could find housing, take care of your kids, find transportation after you've turned all those things over to me? And they're like, of course not. I'm like, well, then be careful or just remember that that's what we're asking sometimes domestic violence victims to do. We don't have the support for them. They don't have enough to survive on with their children. Um, And most of them have kids. Uh, And yet sometimes we will look and go, well, why does she return? Why is she going back? Well, you know what? I trust that survivors are doing the best that they can do. They are living day in and day out in those situations. Yeah. And I have learned to not substitute my judgment for theirs. I think that's a very good point. Do you think that growing up in a military family helped you do the work that you're doing now where so much of it is just what you said, you standing in front of a group of men talking about these subjects? You know, I love working with military and with, with police officers. I, I love it. I, and I do think that uh, growing up in a military family might have helped, but you know what helped more yeah. was growing up in a family of really good, supportive men. Um, I, I just know how to talk with and communicate with people. I love that part of it. And so often my comments are well-received and people don't get defensive. And I think mostly it just has to do with that. My parents taught us how to communicate. You know, my father used to love to, we'd have a big family dinner. I'm the youngest of six kids, you know, and they were all thinkers in my family. So my mm-hmm. father would very casually like throw a bomb, you know, right into the middle <laughs> of the dining room table that he knew would be a subject of controversy. And he taught us how to fairly debate it. And he'd just sit back and watch, you know. So yeah. so honestly, I, I think that had some impact, but mostly I think it is that I have a, a 
a big heart for these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I want to change hearts and minds when it comes to how people deal with victims. Yeah. And they often will respond to a message from the heart. Tell us more what kind of work you've done with the military and what makes it different and what it's like. Well, what I will say is that, you know, working with the military has been amazing. All of those military changes, by the way, all of those programs that are now a part of the Department of Defense, every single branch of the military has robust working sexual assault prevention and response programs. That all basically came from the Air Force Academy and the things that happened down there in 2003. That was the defining moment for the military to begin to really appreciably change the way that they dealt with sexual assault. And so I was, remind us what happened. So in about 2003, um, down at the Air Force Academy, there were several uh, cadets who had been sexually assaulted. They felt that their cases had been mishandled, swept under the rug. Leadership had been disrespectful to them. And they went to the press. They went to Oprah. They went to another reporter at the Denver Post, Miles, and I can't remember his last name. And they broke the story. And, and Congress started paying attention and mm -hmm. sweeping changes came that first started at the academy, then spread to the other service academies, so West Point, Naval Academy, then spread to the branches, Air Force, you know, Marines, Navy, Army. What types uh, of changes um, so they were, suddenly they were required to begin looking at, they didn't really have services for victims. They didn't have, if you will, a kind of a victim advocate for the most part. And so they, they had to create programs so that victims could go get resources. They then started looking at ways to let victims report somewhat confidentially, which sounds weird, but they have a thing called restricted reporting, which allows victims to get help without it going up the chain of command and resulting in an investigation oh, if victims aren't ready for that. Okay. Uh, they had to start doing educational programs. They had to start, you know, really, they started changing their policies. They started changing, uh, ultimately, they changed the UCMJ and a lot of the laws around how these cases are handled and processed. They started demanding changes from the investigators. And so part of, one of the things I did, one of the roles I played with the military, I was hired as what's called an HQE or a highly qualified expert by the U.S. Army, CID Command. CID is the Criminal Investigative Division. And for two years, myself and some other experts worked, we reviewed all of the sexual assault cases that happened in the U.S. Army for a fiscal year. And then we went in and, lessons learned, designed a two-week course for their investigators that CID agents go through in relearning how to investigate sexual assault cases, understanding wow. trauma, understanding how to interview victims, looking at suspects and making sure that you're actually investigating the person that committed the crime and not the victim, you know, like, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So these are huge changes. You know, the military did more in five years than civilian communities had done in 50, honestly. Why do you think that is? Yeah. What was the impetus? I mean, there was the the media outrage, mm -hmm. the public outrage, but what, why? why? Yeah. Because what now we're seeing it? something that's happening similar and it does not seem to be getting right. I think college campuses are changing with all of this. The consent, everybody's talking about consent. Yeah. 
<laughs> I guess it's a rough, a rough couple weeks to be thinking yes. about pro- progress in objective terms. Yeah. But well, you know, I think I think the reason is well. First of all, it was a little bit of carrot and stick. So Congress got involved, and they started demanding reports, very detailed reports on all of this, from first the service academies and then the branches. Mm-hmm. And so they they started really saying, you know. We want reports on these kinds of things. What's the prevalence of this crime? What's the incidence? You know, what are victims saying? What are you doing about it? How? And, and so Congress was kind of the stick in a way, just the oversight. But then I will also tell you this, you know, because I, I grew up in a military family. Um, I, I have a real love for a lot of the, um, the aspects of the military that are very oriented on wanting, that are very caring and oriented toward trying to make the lives of the women and men better. Now, not everybody in the military is like that, obviously, but boy, have I met everything from, you know, enlisted to four-star generals that have a heart for this issue and have really really been the force behind the continued change. So I think it's a combination of things, but the good thing is a tipping point happened in the military. And then I believe that is part of what has also fueled that the next thing that came were college campuses. And suddenly, you know, we had Congress looking and going, what's going on on these campuses? We want to understand why are so many women, especially, Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of men too, being sexually assaulted during their college years. Why does it happen more to gay and lesbian folks than it does to straight folks? Why does it happen more to disabled folks than it does to abled folks? You know, like they they really started looking and going, this isn't okay. Um, so you're right. You know, the college campus movement came right after the military movement. You know, now we've got the Me Too mm-hmm. movement, mm-hmm. which I tell you, these things are related. You know, th- this kind of change is slow like molasses. Yeah. People don't like to talk about this. They don't like to examine their own issues. They don't like to look at the skeletons in their closet. And they certainly don't like to think that there are sex offenders in every single one of our populations and communities. Um, so it's it's going to be back and forth. It's going to be gain some ground, lose some ground. But I do think we're having conversations today that we never dreamed of having 20 years ago. No. And just the little shifts that happen. You know, Portia and I both have young kids. And one issue that came up with my middle schooler last year, he was saying that some of the girls were daring each other to come up and hit the boys as hard as they could. I remember doing that as a kid, you know, like go up to a boy and punch him. And it was a sort of a, an aha moment for me of like, we just can't do those things anymore. And you have to have this very real talk about what would happen to you if you did that, why don't we all just stop doing that? Like, let's just take that off the table as a way that we interact with other people because we just can't, we just can't. And I think it's, it's when I think of examples like that, when you say it moves like molasses, it's because it just pervades every interaction that we have, every dynamic that things have to change. It, that is, that is it. You know, uh, Probably the, my, the favorite thing I've done professionally um, is develop a talk called, well, it's right now, um, it's called Rape Myths on Trial. But I, I originally called it, you know, sexual assault, naming the unnamed conspirator. And it's something that the Media Education Foundation produced and they sell for education for college campuses and the military and all this kind of thing. The whole point of this is that you and I 
and every other person that listens to this podcast is influenced mm -hmm. subconsciously. We, you know, fish don't know they're in water and, and we don't know and understand the degree to which we are influenced by a culture that we've always grown up in. Like, yeah. you know, like you grew up that way, your kids, I don't know where they got that, but you know, suddenly they think that that, that is normal. Yeah. And we have, we have uh, a perspective around how, how we see the crimes of sexual assault, especially that is skewed. It's the, it's the compass I talked to you about. It's the way that we focus on victim behavior and sometimes never get to offender behavior because we've all been coached up that way. Yeah. And so that takes a long time for people to first recognize and then, you know, figure out whether they're willing or able to change that perspective. And it is, it is amazing work. It is really, I'm, you know, I have a heart for survivors um, because of the thousands of them, literally, that I have met. Mm -hmm. I think they're the most courageous people in the world to deal, first of all, with what happens to them, but secondly, sometimes with our responses as a culture to them. The fallout, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I love working on the culture. I think it is, that is where the game is. Mm -hmm. We have got to shed light on how we coach ourselves up to do what we do. And once I think we can pull the kind of the, the blinders off on that. Um, that's when we really start seeing the younger men and women understanding and changing. You know, you're telling your, your daughter, you know what, let's just not do this. Yeah. Let's look at what, you know, let's look at a different way to communicate instead of socking it in the arm. Right. So I, I think that those are all really good seeds that we're hopefully just nurturing into a different understanding. And you've, uh, you've gone all over the world and lectured on this and taught. Have you seen any differences between the United States and other countries with these issues? Do we have a unique problem or is it kind of a human problem? That is a great question, Portia. I would say that it's both. It is not unique in that typically the victims of these crimes are women Violence against women is epidemic in just about every culture that you're going to find. It's it's worse in some cultures, obviously, than ours. We are not owned. We are not property anymore mm -hmm. in the U.S. You know, so there are certain communities and cultures where you can't get educated as a woman, you can't vote as a woman, you can't breathe practically as a woman, right? So, yeah. so yes. Yeah. So first of all, foundationally, it is it is a, a problem that I think that we all share. What I would say about the U.S. that is unique um, or where I think our problems really center that I don't necessarily see in Japan and I haven't seen in parts of Europe, I haven't necessarily seen uh, in, in some other places, is the extent to which we in this country allow ourselves to objectify girls and women for the purpose of being sexual objects, all right? And so, so Do you when, think that's tied to capitalism? What I think it's tied to, and I'm not I'm not here to speak as a moralist, sure, right? No, right? right. But, but, but I do think is that it for the, selling it's the pornography industry that in some ways is is such the elephant in the room that we don't talk about. Sure. And uh, there have been some studies recently that have just really made me connect the dots around the use of pornography by adolescents 
the quote-unquote quality of what they're viewing, which is mostly really misogynist and right. horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you, maybe, maybe you had, saw this too, but at one point about seven or eight years ago when I was doing a lot of case reviews in different parts of the country, I was reviewing cases for the Army. I was reviewing cases for cities, smaller communities, larger communities, sexual assault cases I'm talking about. I started noticing an uptick in two kinds of rape, gang rape and anal rape. And suddenly I was like, why am I seeing this everywhere? Why am I seeing this everywhere? Why is it in this community and that community? They have nothing to do with each other. One is rural, one is urban, one is military, one is campus. And then I started reading the research about pornography. And there is now research there, you know, that, that says that the more adolescents, especially view pornography, the more likely they are to repeat what they see. Right. Right. So it's normative. It's it's it's, normative. Right. Yeah. That's what, that's how, that's their sex education. That's right. Because we're not doing sex sex education much in the United States. That's right. And so they're getting it through porn. They are. And if they learn that that's what sex is, then, and there's rape porn, there's all kinds of porn. If that's what they learn, then of course they're going to repeat it. Yeah. So if that's how we're socializing our boys and our men, And that's how we're socializing our girls and our women. Mm -hmm. We're not talking to them and having real conversations about what healthy sex looks like. Off to college they go. Is it really any wonder that 25% of of young women, usually within their first two years, are experiencing sexual assault? And and one in 20 men, right? Is Is it a wonder? So what do you think? It seems also like there's been a shift in this kind of sex positive. Mm hmm mindset and especially with young women mm-hmm. a lot of millennials and gen z are sex positive yeah and they're reclaiming their sexual identity and power and enjoying sex and do you think pornography has any anything to do with that and do you think that that has contributed to more or less sexual assault you know i think the whole sex positive movement is wonderful. I think, and I think they're kind of different. You know, I I don't see the pornography industry influencing that as much as I see women mostly, um, or, or, you know, folks that aren't on the binary, um, just kind of saying, I don't appreciate any longer the stereotyping that people have tried to put on me all of my life, Mm -hmm. telling me that this is how girls or women behave. I'm okay with, I love sex. I'm okay with, with, you know, having good sex. It's like if the core and the center of that, which it is with sex positive is consent Mm -hmm. is mutual is communication. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. You know, and, and that is the antithesis in my view of pornography. Um, at least that's, you know, there's a guy out of uh, the University of Texas named Robert Jensen who wrote a book called Getting Off. And he talks about the, it's like the decline of masculinity in this country because of what we are doing to men by having their, their socialization around sex be pornography. It's, it's a brilliant read. That is, so when you ask me about the differences between other countries and ours, what I know is that this country is really sick with kind of an unfair socialization process where we have toxic masculinity 
I mean, there's nothing wrong with masculinity. Don't get me wrong. Right. Toxic masculinity, telling men they have to be like this to make it. And then the way that we objectify girls and women, mm-hmm. that they're, this is what they're built for. No, you know, no means yes. Like all of those kinds of things that are really in the backs of people's minds, if we're not educating them, mm-hmm. right, are destroying lives. You know, you've yeah. seen it. I've seen it. Anybody that's worked with survivors yeah. has seen the long lasting impact of somebody that doesn't care about their no, ignores it, takes care of their own needs over the agency of another human being. And 35 years later, 40 years later, whatever it is. You know, here, here's the trauma still alive and well. Mm-hmm. That is something right. I really want for us to change as a, as a community. Um, that's why I've dedicated my legal career, honestly, to these issues. I, I think it's that important. What resources are available for offenders? You know, there are a lot of individual therapists that deal, I think, really well with domestic violence Um, and sex offenders who understand the specifics of those kinds of crimes, right? So what I would say is that I think one-on-one therapy is a really important aspect of of trying to allow men who might be doing that to understand why, to look look at the issues, to to learn kind of how they got there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then they also, you know, courts have we we know that the, these issues are confusing enough that you have to be uh, specifically qualified through the state to deal with domestic violence or sexual assault as a treatment provider if it is a court case. Okay. And there are great reasons for that because, you know, if if therapists or others aren't understanding the power dynamics, the issues, that kind of thing, they're not going to be able to help those clients. So... Um, there is help available. What's interesting is I just don't see a lot of men um, necessarily coming forward and asking for that kind of help. Right. I think we've created a culture where we don't we don't really let that happen. Right. But what I will say, and uh, that there are a lot of men's organizations now who are dealing with this issue of let's look at how we are socialized and let's look at what does it really mean to be a good man? Does it really mean you have to be you know, you have to be in control and, and pushy and all of these things. What about a good dad? What about a loving husband? What about whatever? You know, so right. there are groups and I love them so much that are in the movement and looking at how it's unfair the way that we socialize men mm-hmm. and letting them have a stage and a kind of a way to, to change the messaging that applies to their gender. So you were at the Kavanaugh hearings. I was. Did you listen to all of them? Yes. Yeah, so I, w- I was not in the hearing room. It was a very small and tightly kind of controlled room. But I was there with some other subject matter experts from around the country to do some education as a, you know, to, to try to frame some of the issues that were obviously going to be coming up in those hearings. Things like trauma, things like not understanding delayed reports victim blaming, offender behavior, you know, just um, memory. So so they they asked a number of us to come, and originally we were going to do what was called a shadow hearing for the Senate minority. So um, we were going to offer this education on the day after the hearings to frame what people heard and allow them to get that education. Okay. But then there was a hearing, the markup hearing was set for Friday morning, and so that 
meant that we couldn't do our shadow hearing. So instead they had us before the hearings um, do some education that was taped and then just distributed for people that wanted to hear very brief statements around things like victim impact, memory, the law, the standard. I talked about cultural influences on our think- thinking, victim blaming, offender accountability. Mm-hmm. And, and so those things are out in the ethers for education. But, but then after we did that, we went and in one of the Senate offices, we watched the hearings all day. And then we had another press event following that. So as a prosecutor, what did you think about Dr. Ford's testimony? Did it seem credible to you or have you ever come across any cases like that? You know, that is a great question. And what I can say is that people who work in this field as prosecutors, police officers as well, know that we understand the dynamics. We understand that reporting is almost always delayed. We understand that trauma is the thing that keeps on living its own life within the experience of a survivor. Um, And so when I uh, heard Dr. Ford's testimony, it made perfect sense to me. Um, You know, the fact that the outcry was to people that she trusted, to a therapist, to her husband, well in advance. And then um, as she talked about what happened to her, the fact that she remembered the central details and not the peripheral details is 100% consistent with what we see with trauma victims all the time of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did try cases. I tried it. uh, I tried cases with People who were victimized as children made outcry years later. Um, In fact, I remember one that I tried on the Western Slope. Two sisters who were sexually abused by their stepfather when they were in grade school. The case didn't go to trial until one was in college and the other was in high school. I tried the case. I used expert testimony to help explain all of those kinds of things. They were very credible as as was Dr. Ford, you know, in terms of being able to just speak about what happened and this offender was convicted, right? And so it's not that unusual. We have to understand how sexual assault looks in the life of a survivor and um, what the evidence looks like. You know, trauma continues to lay down its evidence in the life of a victim. When she talked about the two doors, and the, she and her husband wound up in therapy because she needed another door. You know, that is just such a classic example of the ongoing trauma in the life of a survivor. And so if you know what to look for and you know how, you know, when fear is in the room, consent is not. And when fear is in the room, it is the platform for trauma. And trauma keeps on giving, right, in that very negative way right. in many survivors' lives. Right. Then we know what evidence looks like. And I think when you talked about the compass, too, I think that's what a lot of victims need. They need time to get that hindsight of this happened to me. I was a child because often when things happen to people who are younger, you do feel responsible for it. You don't want to be shamed. You don't want to upset. You know, I read an article about that a lot of times women don't come forward with these things because they don't want to upset their dads. And it's like, that's such a revelatory thing. But yeah, I can totally see how as a young girl, you wouldn't want to say this happened to me because you feel so complicit in it and you need to get sometimes years and years to realize, no, that was not okay. And I was a child and 
That's so true. You know, I, I was talking with That's a friend of mine who runs uh, Mesa in Boulder or, or works with Mesa in Boulder. Their calls to their hotline increased by 200% in about yeah. two days. And, and that is happening all around the country. And it, you know, and, and I hate that. I hate that survivors who maybe were doing the best they could by just moving on with their lives now have had to deal with another layer of trauma from, you know, some of what they've been exposed to. But what I know is that, you know, we, we know from surveys over decades uh, that high numbers of women and a fair number of men are assaulted, that they don't report. Right. Right. And we also, you know, so, so when something like this happens, it's, it is going to meet them wherever they are. That mm-hmm. information is very likely to inform their lives in one way or another. And right. I find it unfortunate. I really do. I, I have a lot of empathy for people that are having to revisit that right now in their lives. Um, and it is certainly something that's going on currently. Do you think it's fairly common that people who are victims of sexual assault when they are younger then become later victims of domestic violence? Or of sexual assault. The greatest predictor of who will be sexually assaulted as an adult is somebody that was sexually assaulted as a child by no fault of their own, right? But when you, when you, when a child or someone younger is sexually assaulted and their boundaries are violated and all of those lessons around body agency and self-esteem are interrupted by Mm -hmm. somebody that takes advantage of them sometimes, and not with all survivors, I would never speak, you know, like that, but often what we see is that 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 leaves um, some lessons undone and that sometimes offenders know exactly what to look for in terms of somebody that might not have good boundaries or somebody that maybe is anesthetizing with drugs and alcohol or maybe somebody that has poor Mm self-esteem. And often the roots of that come from somebody abusing them when they were children. And they... It's a, it's a flashing light to an offender that this might be a good, vulnerable victim. And that's often why we see the people that are assaulted as adults um, often have that in their histories. Yeah. Can we talk more about consent? Sure. Since it's such a buzzword right now. What would be your advice to, I would say mostly the male listeners, but anybody who's engaging in sexual activity and they think it's a consensual encounter, what would be your advice to keep them out of trouble? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, and I, I get this question a lot because I, I talk to a lot of, of young service members and I mm-hmm. talk to a lot of college students and just people. People ask me this question all the time. So here's, I think, the bottom line. It's, it's pretty darn simple. You know, you and I consent to things all the time, day in and day out. Can I borrow your car would you pick up my kids? You know, whatever it is, you and I daily right. have have circumstances where we're checking in if something is okay, and if it's not, we know what that we know what that looks like. We know what that feels like. Uh, you go to a car salesman, you get you know you you do not have to buy a car just because somebody is pushy, right? And and we know how that feels to be pushed around. So the, for my first advice is consider every con- context where you are consenting to things or not consenting to things. This is really not that different. Right. Secondly, communicate, you know, because we have been taught to not talk about sex. It's not that hard to check in with your partner verbally, right? And if they can't talk back, leave, <laughs> right? This is the other you know, I mean, Yeah, that's the thing. Don't go into situations mm-hmm. where there's a huge chasm between consciousness or good judgment and 
Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, I, 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 you know, there's nothing illegal about drinking a little bit and having sex. People do right. that all the time. Very likely that's why yeah. some of us are here. Fair enough. You know, my parents <laughs> share a bottle of wine and here we are. Yeah. Um, so that is not the issue because I know in the military there's been this freak out that they're like, oh my God, you can't have one drink and ever have sex. I'm like, really? Right. That's yeah, not no, true. That's, yeah. Right. So, so you have to, again, bring your common sense, communicate verbally. Is this okay with you? Are you okay with this? Right. They, I mean, how hard is that to do? Right. Mm-hmm. We would want anybody to do that with us or with our little brother or sister. So just apply the same logic. And then the other thing is, um, obviously if there's too much alcohol, at all. If somebody is having a difficult time making a decision, tying their shoes, walking, if you wouldn't trust them to drive a car, this is not really a great time to see if they're good in making a decision about having consensual sex. And so use your common sense. Could they drive a car? Could they do something else? If not, why don't you call them the next day when everybody's sober? And then finally, what young men are at risk for is not in my opinion, it's not being falsely accused. It's in hurting someone mm-hmm. unintentionally. It's in crossing a line and hurting someone. Right. The vast majority of victims who experience this do not report. And false reports are so rare. In sexual assault, maybe somewhere between 2 and 8% at the very tippy top of the studies, maybe 10% of reports of sexual assault are false. But we also know that almost none of them even get reported, right? Mm -hmm. Those numbers are no higher than they are for car burglaries or criminal mischief or anything else. So it's this fantasy. It it is. Yeah, it is just ridiculous. It is. So, So what I say is, you know, relax, be a good person. Make sure you're not hurting someone. That's what you're really at risk to do is to just not watch a sign, not look for the no. Um, or, or be tempted to ignore the no. That's when you're going to hurt someone. But you're really not at risk for being falsely accused. I'm sorry. And I know that that's the myth out there. It's simply That's not, definitely the narrative. That's the narrative. That's, that's right. And just for, I think, for young people to remember, your life is full of opportunities to have sex. Right. You know, yeah. one night, one party, whatever. Yeah. It's, the, it, it's being able to have that self-control. And take a step back and just assess the situation for 30 seconds right. and realize, okay, maybe not. this doesn't look so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and the truth is, you know, we don't want the bar to be, am I going to break a criminal law? Am right. I going to commit a felony if I've crossed this line? We want the bar to be respectful, you know, and that yeah. doesn't mean that you're going to marry this person. I'm just saying that co- consent means everybody's on board. Everybody's conscious. Everybody wants to do it. Right. Everybody, it's mutual, right? So I read a fascinating book years ago about boys, and it said that one of the best things we can do to teach young men that very lesson is, you know, when kids are wrestling with their dads or their brothers or whatever, at some point you just stop Mm -hmm. and say, I don't want to wrestle anymore because, like, they're so amped up that they want to kind of keep and you just say, no, like, I'm done. And you just get up and you walk away Mm -hmm. kind of when they're at their most like yeah <laughs> hulkish kind of you know where it's just like learn learn how to how to be told no when you get to that place mm-hmm. and walk away mm-hmm. and and I can totally see how that plays out in later situations mm-hmm. yeah of just being able to hear it hear a no yeah detect a no yeah and I, I think too if people just would connect the dots between oh gosh but I really wanted to wrestle versus if I don't stop, 
I could I could hurt this person for the rest of their lives. That's a great point, right? I mean, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the analogy. I do. No, but I think that's really the yeah. missing piece. Yeah, that's kind Is of that. Yeah, and I don't necessarily think that we teach people what the impacts are. Who wants to talk about this? And you know, we they don't necessarily know. I didn't know until I started prosecuting cases, and you know, it was just heartbreaking for me to see what those five minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes could do to a human being um, and continue, you know, because that, that's the thing. It's that, that trauma, sexual assault is a crime. As mu- it's against the psyche as much as it's against the body, you know, and I think that's why this yeah. is so complicated is this is really a psychic injury. We're talking about the agency of a human being in the most private and intimate context that we can imagine. And so when, and we're also talking about trust and betrayal and, and everything we learn about thinking, oh, I've, I've been raised to have great judgment. I've been raised to, you know, I know. And, and then suddenly somebody, it doesn't matter to them. And, and those kinds of injuries are the things I think that really plague survivors. You know, they, yeah. the rape is one thing, but it's kind of the reliving. And if we are in a position where we either intentionally or not re-victimize someone and blame them, Boy, we are, you know, we're just hurting a lot of people. And I, I hate that. That's yeah. the, that's what keeps me going, honestly, is just trying to get people to understand a little bit more. So, and survivors too, so that maybe they can hear that people understand and believe them. Um, but I would just love if we could change the course of the trajectory of this particular crime. And it's, it's, a, it's a rough one for folks. What do you want to do in the future? What are your goals? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, I work really hard and I play really hard. And so my goals... And some, how do you play? How do We've I talked play? all about your work. That's what true. is your play? So I um, just this year, right? So I have, I, I've been doing a lot of scuba diving. I've, I've, I've swum with whales and oh. with whale sharks. Wow. I jumped out of a plane uh, for the first time, you know, I went, I went skydiving. Oh, uh, I spent a lot of time in the mountains. Risky. I played pickleball. Oh, I love know, pickleball. Yeah, I just started pickleball. It's so fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. I love it. I have, as you know, dogs, um, who keep me very busy and mm-hmm. they are my, uh, you know, kind of my, my treatment, if you will. They're my vicarious trauma treatment. So when I'm constantly hearing about rape cases, um, in my consulting work, they make me laugh. They get me outside. They get me hiking. You yeah. know, um, I I just I'm a, a thrill seeker, unfortunately, in some ways. And so, what I plan to do in the future, you know, I will always I have great things on on the horizon for for people that I get to talk to and ways that I get to have an impact on this crime. I'm simply narrowing my focus a little bit, doing less of it, and playing a little bit more. Um, so, really, in the future, what I want is to be able to look back and, and say and know and perhaps understand that I've had a part in changing hearts and minds when it comes to understanding sexual assault and domestic violence, mm-hmm. that all of the work, not just my work, but the work of scores of people that I stand shoulder to shoulder with has not been screaming into a void, that it has been meaningful, and that we we are changing the reality for our kids and grandkids. That's what I hope to be doing, you know, and, and the way that that looks is all kinds of wonderful opportunities um, in the future. 
some of which are on the horizon and some of which are probably yet to come. But I have a, a really rich life and, and the work I get to do is an absolute privilege, truly. So just more of it, but more play. Good. What's the best advice that you've ever gotten? Oh, wow. I'm putting on the spot here. Let's see. The best advice that I have ever gotten is um, to follow my heart. You know, the whole, this above everything to thine own self be true mm-hmm. is the advice that, that, that has kind of been my compass that, um, you know, certainly as a lawyer, I had a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things and to feather my nest and all of that. But my dad and my mom, especially always told me your only goal is, is to be happy. So follow your heart. And my heart led me into psychology as an undergrad and then into law school and into the lives and the stories of survivors. And, um, that has being true to that, just keeping that as my north has given me the most amazing career. So I try to do that in every aspect of my life. I really lead with a heart that has never let me down. That has never steered me in the wrong direction. That's, That's great, great advice. It I is. Thank you so much, Anne, for joining us. And please go to our website. You can learn more about Anne there, but we're also going to post some really great resources for victims and those who know or care about someone who they think may be going through um, domestic violence or sexual assault issues or reliving a trauma. So go to womeninadaypodcast.com to see those. And Anne, do you have any resources that you want to share You know, what I would say, especially given the timing of all of this and so much in the sexual assault arena, for a listening audience that is in Denver, there is an organization called the Blue Bench, and they uh, do um, outreach and counseling for, you know, men, women, uh, that, you know, anybody, anybody on the, the spectrum anywhere that has experienced any kind of sexual violence. And I would say um, that it would be a, a really good time to connect with them if you are triggered um, in the, you know, and then, yeah. and then also if you're in a listening audience that is larger than the Denver area, um, RAIN, the, mm-hmm. the Rape and Incest National Network can connect you. It's a 1-800 number, and I don't have it memorized, but they can connect you with all of the local rape crisis centers and domestic violence centers as well um, in your local area. So to not be alone with it, there are people, you could sit in a room with people that will understand uh, and to to reach out if you need to. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for having me. And thank you to Tony Tarbox, our editor, and to Hillary Blair, who lent her voice to our intro. Make sure that you check out our Women in a Day podcast Facebook page and Instagram page. We'll post a picture or two of Anne on those. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.